0: but yours be done. Come and change us. Not our will, but yours be done. Come sustain us. Amen. Um, So, I was thinking about it. This morning I want to talk to you a little bit about a... uh, a community that had gathered together in a room that was kind of big, and we're kind of wondering what the, how the heck we end up here? Um, what are we doing here? And, uh, but um, that's not us per se. You might have thought that we were talking about us. I'm talking to one, of, but in a sense, I do want to talk about us. I want to talk about the church, the early church. For those of you who are actually tuning in for the, uh, from online and whatnot, there's a ble- big blizzard going on right now. And, uh, and yet God has not left himself without a witness. And so uh, we want to just enter into what God is doing with us today and hear his word. So will you pray with me? God, um, we ask that you come now, Holy Spirit, come in power with full assurance and enliven us, change us, not our will, but your be done in our midst so that we might be in, truly transformed into the image of your son, Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray, saying, Amen. So, hey, um, I've been really taken with the sermon series that we've been going through in Ephesians and some of the themes that we've been talking about pertaining to Anakephalia, the, where it says in Ephesians that God will unite all creation up under one head, one sacred head wounded, right? So one sacred wounded head. And what Peter's been talking about in the last um, few weeks, he's been trying to paint a picture from different angles where he's kind of showing us, say, from the foundation of the world, this has been God's plan from all creation, that he's going to raise us and join us and draw all the lost up into him. And and so then it raises this question, right? That if that's the case, if God's working about this renewing of all creation, drawing us up, making us new in him, uh, drawn up under his headship, then what is it to be the church? Why church? What's the purpose? What's our task? What's the vocation, to use a more technical term, of why we exist in the world? What is God up to with that, if he's doing this kind of thing? And I think it would be neat to look at that from the perspective of the early church. And so many of you are going through the um, uh, book study, we're reading through the Community Bible Experience, right, in some of our small groups, where we're just reading through the Bible together and just allowing that story to impact our lives and, and, and asking the question, what does it look like for us to find our story in that story? And many of you right now are reading through Acts right now. And so I thought it would be neat to look at the beginning of the church and how it went from a room full, of a, 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 a small community of people in a room, huddled together, maybe in a little bit of fear, certainly asking, what are we, what, what are we doing here? Why here, why, have God, why has God gathered us here in this place? To a community that just kind of exploded on the scene, on the, world, on the stage of world history. And a people full of fear became emboldened and empowered and equipped and they were communicating and witnessing the, to the truth of what God had done in Jesus Christ in raising him from the dead. And so I thought we'd look at that story a little bit together and then ask the question, what is our purpose? Why the church then? If God's doing this thing that he's doing, why, is, why us? Why us here? So will you join me in Acts chapter 1 when we look at verses 3 through 9? This is the very beginning of Acts where it says this. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So what I want to focus on this morning is this passage that uh, kind of sharpens down into verses 8 and 9, and I'll read that for you again. When Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Verse 8. Uh, What we see here, and many scholars will point this out, is a thesis of sorts for the book of Acts. Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts, is the only gospel or the only author that kind of really addresses the fact that after Jesus was raised from the dead, after he was crucified, raised from the dead, and then ascended, history kept going. Life went on, right? He did not immediately come back. And so Luke then looks at and explores what happens after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his ascension from the world, and how then, he is, how then the community that he'd formed and shaped and he'd called and gathered around himself were to live and how they did live and how they were then called to interpret his life in the world. Or maybe better yet, how they were to embody his life in the world. So Luke says the story goes on. And in fact, he gives kind of an outline for his own book of Acts, how that story goes on. He talks about then how this community is going to receive power through the spirit come upon them, and then they will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, the surrounding area of Jerusalem, in Samaria, the neighboring region just to the north of Judea, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And that's actually how the story of Acts kind of unfolds. We see the expansion of the, the community, the, the witness of the people, the gospel going out in that kind of concentric circles from an internal place in Jerusalem, centered in Jerusalem, in these um, concentric rings. Uh, into Judea, J- Samaria, and even unto the ends of the earth. We've, at the end of Acts, Paul winds up on his way to Rome, right? And as you've heard the story or the saying goes, all roads lead to Rome, and then by extension that means that once the gospel reached Rome, it was staged to hit, reach the whole entire world. And that's the trajectory of the, the gospel of Acts. So as you're reading through that uh, in your community groups, um, think about that. Watch how the story is unfolding just as um, Luke says early on in this passage. What I would like to focus on then is this, the, like how? How does that message go out? How does that, has that people formed and shaped? How are they sent into the world? How does that uh, get accomplished? After all, these were people with, um, at, at the end of Um, the Gospel of Luke, that were afraid. They were terrified. They were huddled in a room wondering, what is going on? (laughs) All our hopes and our dreams that we had in Jesus have been dashed, right? And then Jesus shows up in their midst and he commissions and he sends them, right? In fact, we see that um, at the very heart of this group of people, their life together is a life that's going to be all about mission, right? And it's described in a whole lot of different ways. So for instance, in Paul's letters, he will say things like in Ephesians, live a a life worthy of your call. Uh, Live a life, how shall we order, in Philippians, he says, how shall we order our life in a manner worthy of the gospel? That language of worthiness is how Paul gets to this idea of God's missionary people, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. You are a sent people. Mark talks about the um, community as uh, having an apostolic, as being apostolic in their nature. That's another way of saying commissioned or sent ones, right? And in Luke, Luke talks about them in terms of witness, 11 times in the, uh, one time in the Gospel of Luke and 11 times in the book of Acts, he uses that word witness. So how are they going to become this people sent out to witness and testify to the truth of Jesus in their life together? Well, we see, I want to focus in on three different kind of components. I think if we look at this verse eight, we see, first of all, that they are going to, that the spirit is going to be poured out in their midst. Uh, The enlivening spirit is going to be present in them. Secondly, they are going to be empowered and equipped for that vocation, that mission. And third, that their witness is going to be actualized, okay? So what do I mean by, so I want to look at the Holy Spirit who empowers them for witness, threefold. Do you see that? So, how does that then happen for them? Well, when we look at it, we see that, first of all, the promises made from Jesus that the Spirit will fall upon you, that the Spirit of God will be poured out in your life. And what is he talking about here? What spirit are we describing? I think what he's basically saying is, if you remember his own story, the same spirit that was uh, revealed and fell upon him in the Jordan River was going to be the spirit that was going to be poured out in their midst on the day of Pentecost, just a few verses later in the story of Acts. The same spirit that drives Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days is the spirit that's going to push the people out into the world just a few chapters later. The spirit that equipped and empowered Jesus to perform works and signs, wonders and miracles, right, is now gonna be present in the life of this people and doing things that Jesus says are beyond even what you've seen in my midst. The spirit of, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now going to be made alive in them to the point where that they can become witnesses to that resurrection. This spirit of God is, by all sense and purposes, um, a missionary spirit. It's a sending spirit. It's a spirit that comes alive in us and even though Jesus is no longer present in us, he's present uh, physically, he's present amongst his people through this enlivening spirit, this initiating spirit, this spirit that is um, all about sending his people into the world. It's the spirit that enlivens. Now, That same spirit is also the spirit that empowers. Jesus himself says you will receive power from this spirit, power from on high. And just as you are going to have your life, your, your purpose, your life together initiated in this spirit, the spirit, the Holy Spirit will also empower you for the work, for the task that you've been called to. Just as you have been drawn up in this spirit, gathered together by him He is now going to equip you. He's going to empower you, and he's gonna empower you for all kinds of works that you would never believe. And so what we see in the story of the the book of Acts is the people, every time that the spirit falls upon the people, inevitably what happens is mission starts to take place. They start to testify. They start to give witness to what they've seen and heard. They start to move, and they are emboldened in fact, they are so emboldened that just um, a few verses later, uh, Peter and John are seized by, are engaged in um, these wor- wondrous works of healing. And on a uh, Sabbath day, in fact, they heal a man, just kind of in the same line as what took place with Jesus and Luke, and um, and they're taken by the ruling powers and the authorities. The, uh, the, the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and they're brought before the Sanhedrin to give an account for their, um, their act of healing on the Sabbath. And how do they respond? Well, they respond, they're, they're brought under all sorts of pressure to, to give over, to relent, to, to qu- become quiet in, uh, about this Jesus that, in, whom, in whose name they speak. And they respond with... The, um, By saying this, we are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. Oh, sorry. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Did you get that? Where's this boldness from? I mean, the, the same folks like Peter, who denied Jesus three times when asked by a servant girl if he was associated with this Jesus of Nazareth, now before the most powerful people in the region, he's saying, hey, that, you do what you need to do. But as for me, as for us, we cannot keep quiet. We must testify, we must witness to that thing that we have seen and heard. And that kind of leads me to this third point of that their vocation, what has, the, the, how they've been equipped, they've been equipped for a certain purpose, and that's to witness. Did you catch that word, witness? It shows up all over the place. Another place in the Gospel of Acts is with, when Peter um, is um, brought to, by the Spirit, driven by the Spirit. Uh, again, we see the Spirit moving people, making connections, orchestrating all sorts of things in the book of Acts. Peter is brought to Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, and he gives an account of, of this Jesus that Cornelius is asked, asking about. And, and it, within that account, Peter says this, we are witnesses to all that he did both in Judea and in Jerusalem. That they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. At the heart of their very life and their very purpose, this community was to be about to give testimony to what they've seen and they've been, and, then at that, and that, that they had heard. That they were chosen, but not chosen for privilege, chosen for a responsibility. They had been given a gift, but that gift led to a task. They were to be A witnessing community witness is an appropriate word as one scholar says uh, to to be equated with mission and so I want to ask the question this morning on this Jubilee Sunday when we are gathered together to celebrate what it means to seek the benefit of our neighbors I want to ask why the church why do we exist what's our purpose some Have said that the church exists as those people who have heard the good news, who've believed in it, who've accepted into their heart, and therefore they are on the they will be receive the benefits of salvation. They will um, be with God and they will, at the end of their life, they will join with him in heaven. Right? And while there may be some truth in a shape or form, but to reduce it down to that. It's a reduction of the gospel. Others have said, no, the church is to, in its life, embody a kind of way of living, a, a morality that um, is over and against the rest of the world. And so the church exists to give life to and, um, and to demonstrate in, uh, in their, their words and especially in their deeds, moral, morality, right? Uh, but, and this is true, but again, to reduce it to that to that kind of moralism is a reduction of the gospel. Karl Barth says, oftentimes what we hear um, said uh, in the purpose of the church, that in all the organization and work of all churches, is it not that the, the purpose in some form and with some degree of urgency to save human souls, to show men the way of redemption, to cause them to become Christians for the sake of their personal salvation and the experience of salvation, and with the same end in view to, conform, to confirm and strengthen and nourish them as such to maintain, protect, and more deeply establish them in their Christianity. In other words, the church, is, isn't the church's purpose to be the means of salvation? It's our job to go out on a mission and to convert, to witness, Right? I think that there's a fundamental flaw in that reduction because what it ends up doing is it reduces our very purpose into uh, our own personal appropriation and the appropriation of other people of salvation into our lives as an experienced reality. And, And at first, while that seems like it's good, what we realize is ultimately then I become the standard by which Salvation is actualized and realized. I become the means by which salvation comes to someone else. It is my task then to convince and to convert others to Jesus. And isn't that oftentimes what we associate witness with? Right? Doesn't witness then become, don't for many of us, we have a concept of witnessing as convincing? as persuading as maybe even coercing but here's the problem if we engage in relationships with a mentality of witnessing with that kind of paradigm in mind don't you see what we do we, have a third, we engage in relationship with others, with our neighbors, with a third end in mind. I engage in relationship with you because I want to persuade or influence or um, maybe even convince you of this other thing, whatever that is. So whether it's so that you might accept Jesus into your heart, that you might be saved, that you might be embraced or brought into the church, that you might live a moral life. I engage in a relationship with you with a third end in mind. And what happens when uh, I approach that relationship in that kind of way, and then I don't see the results that I want? I move on from that relationship. That relationship is no longer any good for me it won't produce the kind of thing that I'm looking for and so I move on to the next relationship and the next and the next until I hit on what I'm looking for I know that this seems like I'm making a big deal at a little thing but if we live a life like that if we have a concept of witness as with a third end in mind then I don't think we're living out the true gospel we aren't living out Jesus, who came incarnate in our life and in his life amongst us, who lived and died, suffered and died, was raised again, all for our sake, with no other third end in mind. Well, anyway, I want to talk with you a little bit more about that at a later point, but for now, let me just ask then okay, if witness isn't to convince or to coerce or to persuade, then what is it? What is witness? What is it when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? Well, quite simply, as Peter says, it's to testify to what we've seen and what we've heard, to stand and to give an account to be honest, to not be afraid, to be bold in that honesty. But it's to be like brought up before a trial and to say, I don't know about you and whether you think this is right or wrong, but as for us, how can we not speak about what we've seen and what we've heard? That's what mission looks like in the life of the church. Now that may seem kind of abstract, right? And kind of heady and conceptual. But I wanted to give voice and allow uh, a chance for others to give voice to what they've seen and what they've heard, how God has been using them and using this church to give an account of Jesus in the world. And so I'm going to share with you a little, I wanna have some people come forward and share with you a little bit about what it means for might potentially mean for us as a, the sanctuary, a church, to give witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I'd like to ask Barry first to come forward and uh, share a little bit about a ministry that he's been a part of and what that's meant for him and what we're going to be doing and, and to, vi- to put that on your radar screen. How are you going to talk here without
1: a microphone? Because that's how it was built. No. Oh, you're recording it, so now I have to use the microphone. Is it on, Glenn? Or who's up there? Let's hear it for our our support up there, right? (laughs) How about our support back here? All of our musicians, our musicians that serve us. Isn't that an amazing thing? Mm -hmm. Our talkers that serve (laughs) us. Thanks for being here, you guys. So I want to talk to you about Men at the Cross. It's part of the Cross Ministry Group. There's also Women at the Cross. Um... For a couple of years, a friend of mine had said, yeah, you should go, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, you should go. Well, finally he said, you should go, and I'm like, fine, I will go, and then I went. And uh, I experienced some incredibly amazing things. Um, just for a, a, a short description, um, I've never really felt like a man. When I was a kid, I used to like, watch Mr. Rogers and make things out of paper. That was that was my life. Well, currently I am watching movies and making things out of paper. <laughs> and one of the questions that we ask at Men at the Cross is: um, Are we 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 fill in this statement? I know I'm a man because well, I know I'm a man because I make things out of paper. I'm making this paper dress. Now I'm not a fashion guy, but I make paper dresses, and I'm a man because that's what I do. Um, when I went to Men at the Cross, I, I was surprised by all these guys that were up there. There was about 30 guys that attended like me. And then there was about 30 or 35 guys that were staffing. I'm like, what's, what's all this? There was a, a, a process that we did. We talk about these rocks. Like you see these rocks down here at the bottom of the cross. There's these, these rocks that I carry around. And I didn't really know it. It makes me think of that uh, young Frankenstein thing, you know, where the Igor, he's got that thing, and, and the, the guy accidentally touches it, bonk, and he goes, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a famous surgeon. I, I could maybe help you with that hump. And the guy goes, what hump? <laughs> so I was carrying these rocks around, or I, I carry these rocks around, and I had this rock that was about being a man. My dad and I never really associated and didn't really do a lot of stuff together. But there was this, this circle of guys around me and around us that were supporting what we were doing. And there was this moment when um, there was this really like, big thing that was happening. And I, they asked me to turn away and look at this guy while they were making this thing happen. So when they got it fixed and I turned around, he said, well, what do you see? And I looked around and all the guys that were involved were doing exactly what I was doing. And the guy that was standing next to me, guiding me through this really risky thing, said, I'm going to do everything that you do. And I've never experienced that in my life until then. I never had that feeling of that kind of support from men, for me, that was huge. And then at the end of the weekend, I'm like, see, I only paid a few hundred bucks to go on this weekend, but there was all these guys on the staff. I'm like, how are they getting paid? They pay to volunteer to staff. That blew me away too. That was an amazing surprise for me. Um, I staffed a couple weekends ago with Keith Uh, Another guy from our church, a dude from our church attended the weekend about six weeks before then. He said, yeah, I'm gonna go. And he never signed up and he never signed up. The day before I said, hey, are you gonna go? He goes, yeah, well, I missed the deadline. Like, um, we might be able to work that out. So he signed up and he went. And if he was here today, he would say, in 20 years, if I looked back, I would look on Men at the Cross as the most important thing that happened in my life. So there's a Men at the Cross weekend going on right now in Kentucky. And a couple of our guys, uh, Bob Hudson, who goes to this church, is down there staffing the weekend. There's a weekend in Dallas in March for men. Uh, May 3rd through 5th, Andrew, with God's help, will be there. And I would love to see all y'all go that's some people here in denver right yeah in denver in may uh guys it's amazing uh, some some guys would say um when they come back home to their wife honey i learned things that you already knew <laughs> that's what they would say women at the cross uh, kathleen has staffed right francis has staffed is that she attended okay francis has staffed i don't know if any other women here have gone to win the cross brandy yeah so if you need, it, if you need to, you need to, you need to talk to folks about it. Women at the Cross, Kentucky, in April; Denver, April 19 through 21; Dallas, May 7 through 19. And if you're alumni of Men at the Cross, Women at the Cross, there's a coed Sage Weekend. We talk about the mind, uh, the mind of Christ. Uh, it's happening in June. The last thing I'll say is there's a there's a guy that I met this. Um, Uh, last Friday who attended Uh, we didn't know that we would meet each other on Friday and and he said the same thing he's like I wish I would have just signed up instead of like all this time to wait before I signed up because he said it was just amazing you see the look on his face so come thanks
0: so there's one way in which God is calling men to witness to one another in our communities, in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, right? And, to, and it's not the thing in and of itself, but I think it's the taste of the thing. And so there's one thing that we're gonna be doing, and you're invited to be a, a part of that. I wanna bring up Eileen to share a little bit about another way in which we're serve, um, witnessing in our Samaria, right? Which would be like our neighbors. And Eileen's gonna share a little bit about Uh, our Jubilee services.
2: So, um, technically, I lead the Jubilee service, which is chaos, because I am chaos in general. (laughs) Um, But I think for me, when when Andrew asked me to talk a little bit about the concept, the witness is probably the biggest thing for me. Um, very briefly, my testimony is um, I'm Gomer from the book of Hosea. I've been forgiven and received a lot of love and grace. And so what's happening is God says, I want you to go out there, and I want you to speak and live that love out to other people that the world casts out. Mm-hmm. And so when, when Andrew asked me, actually Andrew didn't ask, he asked my husband, my husband said, you're gonna do this, You know, you're gonna love this, this is going to embody everything of what you believe in. And so, when I heard about the Sun Valley Youth Center and what they're doing, um, it was was everything that my heart, like my heart beats for the heart of the Sun Valley Youth Center. And they help refugees often from Somalia and Sudan. Um, We're now on third generation refugees. Um, And what's happening is the procreation rate is really high. Graduation rate is really low in that area and they are not hearing the love of Christ from the community. And so what God, I think, spoke to me is, Eileen, you have received grace beyond imagine. You have received love time and time again when I did not deserve grace. I was a really bad wife for a long time. And my husband stood there, and his calling was to love me. Our calling is to get a taste of loving them. And the Jubilee service is only once a quarter, but we want that to give you a taste to testify to what God is doing in your life, to help you then go out and live that out daily. So the Jubilee is not meant to be the end in itself. It's meant to introduce you to that calling. And, And God has really confirmed to me through the years is that I'm not meant to be called to something specific. I'm called to people. I'm very relational. And he said, I mean, go out there and love them and build those relationships. But what's funny is he's saying, for me, is to be the example to the church right now, is to be the example so that you guys can know what it's like to love somebody else who doesn't deserve to be loved. Mm-hmm. You guys can then feel, no, you can, you can see what it's like to see lives change like I was changed. You are gonna go and be who my husband was, but in a very small piece. And then you're gonna find where God's calling you. And the Sun Valley Youth Center might not be it. Maybe it is women at the cross. Maybe it is women at the cross. It could be your daughter, your wife, your son. It could be the person at work. But the Jubilee is just a taste of what grace and mercy and what the sanctuary embodies. And so I just wanna ask that you pray and ask god what does that look like what am i going to do at the sanctuary i'm sorry um at the jubilee service um is it you looking forward at the next place that we're going to partner with is it you going and committing to serving those five-year-olds at the sun valley youth center once a week beyond the jubilee service you're to testify and be grace like my husband was to me because those kids Need someone to believe in them. My husband said, and I'll end with this, my husband told me the other day, um, th- thinking about what, what God's gonna, when we get to heaven and we are that perfect creation, we're, not, we're, not, we're on the sixth day and we're being made, right? We're not there yet. And, um, and Kevin said, he realized, after almost 11 years of marriage, he said, I cannot imagine what you're gonna be like perfect. You are so amazing broken. What are you gonna be like whole, you know? And, and so at the end of the day, we get to, to just help people, to, we get to see in people that wholeness. We get to love them into that wholeness, to pick them up instead of tear them down. And I think for me that's what the Jubilee Service is, and that's what Sun Valley Youth Center is to pick people up and to show you and to give you an example, a taste of seeing life change.
1: Thanks.
0: Yeah, uh, I, what I love about that concept, what I love about that concept is um, that we, here is a chance to go love our neighbor with no third agenda in mind, right? No ulterior purpose. We're just gonna love our neighbor. And in doing that, Jesus will be in the, in the midst of us and actually he will reveal something about himself to us through them and vice versa, right? Um, That's what it means to love and to give witness in Samaria. So what does it look like to the ends of the earth? Well, maybe it looks a lot of different ways, but maybe uh, Keith can share uh, a little bit about one dream that we have here at the church. So uh, I would like to introduce you Keith O'Neill. Good morning.
3: So, uh, it's exciting to me to talk about these things. Um, I've experienced Men at the Cross, um, and it's life-changing, it really is, and I invite you to that. And I've experienced going to uh, Sun Valley with Eileen, and it's life-changing, and I invite you to that. Um, So my job today, though, is to talk about the ends of the earth. Uh, So I was thinking, how do I describe this? Ten years ago um, was the first time I had ever um, gone on a mission trip as an adult. Um, I grew up overseas. um, I worked professionally overseas. And I had been invited on many, many mission trips and always said, you know, timing's not right. I'd always said "Uh, finances aren't right, um, the country's not right, those people might not be right. I had all sorts of excuses. so I just wanted to share what my experience was. I, I got invited to go to Mongolia. Uh, it's a country between uh, China and Russia. And I got excited about that because it sounded like a fun vacation, <laughs> something adventurous, um, something that not many people had had the opportunity to do. And uh, and so I bought my tickets, and I went with this organization to Mongolia. Uh, and it was, it was. Uh, a unique experience uh, we landed in the country and we were told we're going to go out into the middle of the Gobi desert and that it would take anywhere between 8 and 12 hours um, to get there because there's no roads and so when weather comes in you have to stop and you have to stop again and you have to stop again and you have to ask directions and people point you in the direction of where you're going and so you head out in that way for a while and then you stop again they point you a little bit more over that way and so after 12 hours of traveling in a Russian Jeep with no suspension, um, we get to this village in the middle of nowhere. And uh, growing up, I had seen a lot of people um, slinging Bibles, standing on, pre- on uh, street corners, um, testifying to Christ, but in a sort of confrontational um not seeming from the heart sort of way. And what I experienced there was something unique. It was people that had gone out to this village, and this is a communist village. They're still all communist villages right now. Um, And they began to tell me a story. Two years before I had visited, a missionary had come to this village and wanted to start a church. And uh, it was sort of like a, a, a bull in a china shop. And so he got this building and he started to invite people and he started to try to convert the community. One night, uh, the villagers got upset um, and they beat him up and they kicked him out into the desert and told him not to come back. Two years after this happened, the organization I was with, um, they had gone into the same village and they began to feed the kids. Um, The children in this village would normally eat maybe one meal a day. Um, sort of like a, a rice porridge type thing. So they begin to feed him, um, and they begin to love on him, and that was it. And about six months goes by, and they went to the, uh, the governor of this village and said, you know, we, 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 everything's been going well. We would love to start a church here, um, if that'd be possible. And the guy said, oh, of course you can start a church. In fact, I'll give you a building um, to meet in. And so today, um, there are nearly 100 people in this church, in the village, in the middle of the Gobi Desert, and since then there's been more projects started all over the desert. And I, I'm struck, um, similar to what Andrew's talking about, about a third end in mind. I, I'm struck by the fact that many people do what we do because we have this third end in mind we want to change, we want to coerce, we want to um, have somebody conform to us, I would just challenge you to, to maybe look at it as, maybe we do what we do because we ourselves have been changed. Our lives have been changed and now we, we feel a need. We feel a need to bring our brothers and sisters to men and women at the cross. We feel a need to go to Sun Valley and to say, hey, you know what, I'll put paint on a building, I'll work with kids that are less fortunate. Or maybe I'll go on a mission trip and we'll go and we'll feed children in some other country. And so that's what I want to invite you to today. Um, We're going to be meeting in two or three weeks. Um, It'll be in the S-News or the Snooze. And 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 then we'll also be making another announcement. But I'd invite you to come with me. Um, We're gonna gonna decide on a country that we're gonna visit um, this year. Um, and I would invite you to come and see what God is doing. Um, it's huge. It is really huge. And it's going on all over the world. So come and testify with me. Mm-hmm.
0: So I hope you get a sense of just a taste. These are all things that are like a taste of what's going on, and what's inspiring for me is just, it's like, there's no coercion here, right? There's no like pressure, there's no guilt. It's just saying, hey, this is what God's doing with us right now, and these structures that we have in place, they, um, they're just that. They're, they're just enough structure so that the real life that is church might happen. And here's an opportunity to come join us in some of the things that we're doing here in the sanctuary. You know, um, it's interesting that when Jesus says, and you, uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will receive power from on high and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He, it, it, he says it in such a way that we real like if you get into the grammar of the whole thing, you realize, okay, it's actually not a commandment, like you should be, be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You must, you ought. No, he says you will be, as in like a promise. You will be. And doesn't that make sense? Because after all, when you look at the book of Acts, all you see is, the Spirit of God moving in such a way, coordinating, operating, bringing Philip one place, Stephen another place, taking Paul, showing up in Saul's life, who would become um, Paul, right? Taking Peter and revealing things to him, that he, things that he never would have imagined. And again and again and again, you get the sense that these people aren't in control, but they're responding to the Spirit's movement. And they are giving witness. They are standing up, like our friends just did, and they're testifying to what they've seen and what they've heard. And all of that, that we're doing this morning and what we're sharing is, again, and, you know, I hope you hear that. It's just a taste of the thing. It's not the thing in of itself. But we want to see the thing in of itself, our life, our vocation, our purpose, our mission to be born in us through the Spirit of God. You know, that word witness, uh, it's in the Greek, it's martyrios. It's where we get the word martyr. And uh, as you kind of progress into a theology of witness, you start to realize, especially in Acts, that that, um, that testifying that takes place in these people starts to take on a different tone. It's not just testifying to what they've seen and what they've heard, but that it's, it's actually beginning to look like they're embodying the very life of Jesus. Um, even if that means suffering. And so that martyrdom that starts to materialize. Now, giving your life over, losing your life for the sake of, of Christ becomes to increasingly um, be present in the witness of the community. I want to share with you um, the first martyr martyrdom story that comes in Acts chapter 7. It comes with Stephen. And Stephen is one of the deacons, newly ordained deacons, who is seized by those that had come against this new fledgling church. And and in front of all of them, he stands and gives an account, not only for his life, but for the life of Jesus. And he gives an account of the story of what God has been up to from the foundation of the world through Israel, Moses and David and so on, and finding its culmination in Jesus. He testifies, he witnesses, witnesses and then he, and then it says this when they heard these things they became enraged these that those that had seized him and they ground their teeth at stephen but filled with the holy spirit he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of god and jesus standing at the right hand of god look he said i see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears, and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out into the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses, what um, Acts earlier says, the false witnesses, laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul. And while they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It echoes in my head what Jesus said on the cross, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And when he had said this, he died. And I I look at Stephen and I go, gosh, look at, I mean, how he embodied Jesus for the whole world. And what strikes me is um, when he has this vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. You know, that's the only time in the Bible, in the whole New Testament, where you get the picture of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. All the other times it says, Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. But when, when Stephen embodies Jesus' life in the world and gives witness to him, it's almost like Jesus stands in honor of that and gives witness back. I see, what, I see what you do, Stephen. I've heard what you just said. And you are part of me, and I'm in you. You are my witness. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Whether you part, participate in something like Men at the Women at the Cross, or Jubilee, or or a mission trip that we're gonna be hoping to do at the end of uh, the summer, beginning of the fall, I, you know, I, honestly, I really don't care that much. What I really care about is that we would become a church that seeks to embody the life of Jesus, even if that means suffering, that we would walk that lonely road to Calvary with him, that we would find our life in him and his life in us, that we would truly be Christians, and that his name would be made known in the world, and that those who are lost would be found, that all would come to know what is true about them in Jesus Christ. And that's why we celebrate the table every Sunday. This right here is our witness, because it speaks to what is true for the world. And you and I as church, we are those who have gotten a taste of that, and that we can live in light of that on behalf of those who yet do not know. For one day, all the world will be caught up in his life under his head, his head that is wounded for our sake. And so I pass on to you today what was entrusted to me, that on the night that our Savior was betrayed, he took bread and having given thanks, he blessed it and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Every time we eat of this bread, Paul says, every time we drink of this cup, we're doing something. We are witnessing to the saving death of our Lord until he comes again. So friends, come and be a part, stand and join in In the witness, the chorus of witnesses of the witnesses, the church, be church this morning together. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, ingest it into your body, and in doing so may you participate in his life. May what's true about Jesus become true of you. May and in particular may his vocation become your vocation. May you be witnesses to him. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Come.